Mark Inc. Ministries presents the preaching and teaching of Dr. Chuck Betters of Glasgow Church in Bear, Delaware. This sermon is part of the In His Grip series that can be found along with other various resources by visiting our website at markinc.org. That's www.markinc.org. Are yourselves adoptive children or adoptive parents? How many of you have somebody in your immediate family who is adopted? Well, question I have for you is how many of you are spiritually adopted? You know, we're going to revisit this birth line, and we're going to revisit it in another way. It's the birth line. It's really the same thing as the circle, only we've made it in a linear sort of way rather than in a circular sort of way to try to highlight for you exactly how this process of salvation happens. And that's the key word. The word is process. We've been tuned and and, uh, trained to believe that Salvation has to be some sort of a uh, climactic, uh, dramatic point X. And although there does indeed have to be a birth of the baby, that dramatic uh, experience is not necessarily the case for everybody. Now we've been talking as we've been developing this series, trying to explain to you the, the process of salvation from beginning to end. We're spending a lot of time on some of these things because when we get into the doctrines of how we live as a Christian, the doctrine of sanctification, how then do we live? How do we conduct ourselves? What happens when we sin? What happens when we fall? How how is it that we take two steps forward and a step backward? Why is it that inside of us our 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 uh, the, the the war is raging concerning uh, doing the right things and the wrong things? Even as Christians, we struggle with this. We cannot really appreciate and understand the doctrine of sanctification, which is on the right side of that dramatic or that non-dramatic point X, unless we understand what happens before the conversion occurs. Now let me review for you what happens before regeneration. Something that happens before regeneration. All the way back in eternity past, God elected to himself a people. He called to himself a people. For purposes and reasons known only to him, God chose to himself a people. He knows who they are. He knows what they are. He knows where they are. From all eternity past to all eternity future, God has elected and ordained to himself a peculiar people. Now you say, well, why did he do that? Is it because he saw that I was going to believe and therefore based on my choice to believe, God chose me? Absolutely not. That would be salvation by works. God chose you for reasons known only to him. That's one of the first questions I am going to ask when I get to heaven. Why did you choose me? I don't understand that. I can't possibly comprehend that great love because I know what kind of a sinner I am. I don't know why God chose me. It certainly wasn't on the basis of merit because I haven't merited anything. It certainly wasn't on the basis of faith because I haven't always believed. 
It wasn't because I'm not as sinful as somebody else because compared to the holiness of God, I am a sinner. And I always will be a sinner. And God will always be holy and I will always be sinful. So then God, why did you make that choice? I don't know. But now God has to take what he does in eternity and bring it into time. And that's where the birth line is. Now in the scriptures, our spiritual birth is, is uh, paralleled with our physical birth. God uses the illustration of the physical birth to help us to understand a spiritual birth and what takes place spiritually in our lives. The beginning point in time, if you will, where the Holy Spirit begins to apply what God ordained before the foundation of the world is that moment of regeneration. That is when we are born again. That's when God plants into our spirits a new nature. He unites us to Christ, implants within us the faculty of faith, we are totally passive in that process. We do not know in whom God has done that work of regeneration. It can happen as early as in the womb. It can happen as a baby. It can happen as a young person. It can happen as an adult. But at some given point in your life, your nature has to be changed because your nature of death cannot respond to the things of life until that nature is supernaturally changed. Something dead has to come to life. And so when the baby is conceived, when the egg and the sperm physically come together, the Spirit of God and the Spirit of man likewise come together. At some given point, we are regenerated. Now there are some who place regeneration later in the process. Now, I want to explain something to you. Listen carefully. All of these terms happen all the way through the process. In its widest sense, regeneration happens all the time. It happens while we're being sanctified. It happens when we're being converted. It happens when we're glorified. But I'm speaking of regeneration in its limited sense. That is when the Spirit of God changes my nature gives me the faith to believe, implants that nature inside of me so that one day at my conversion, I may choose Jesus Christ as my Savior and Lord. Unless he does that, I'll never be converted. That's step one. Well, now during the birthing process, the baby has to go through a pregnancy. The mother goes through a pregnancy stage while the baby is being developed. The life that's in her is being developed. It's being readied. It's being prepared, if you will, for the coming out party. It's being prepared for the actual birth. Spiritually speaking, we call that the effectual calling. God begins to change the way you think, convict you of sin, enable you to believe, and he begins to fertilize and cultivate that faculty of faith that was implanted when you were regenerated. He uses circumstances crises, pain, suffering, joyful experiences, religious experiences, camp meetings, altar calls, worship services. Uh, uh, the, the, the creativity of God is unlimited in this regard. He can use a thousand different ways and means to bring you to an understanding that A, you are a sinner, and B, you need a Savior, and that Christ is that provision. God isn't finished with you yet. 
And even as a believer, and you look across that birth line, and you realize that even after your conversion, God has much work to do. He has to bring you to a point of holiness where the remnants of sin in your life are put away and He is preparing you for glory where there is no sin, you see. So the process is still there. So during that effectual calling, God prepares us to be converted. It is the Spirit then who enables, who draws, who convicts, and who calls. But now you come to the point X. You come to the point X, and it may or may not be a dramatic point. It may or may not be a point that you can actually remember. But you will find evidences of your conversion in two things. Number one, you believe. And number two, you repent. I believe the Gospel. I repent of my sins, and I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me, and I trust in Him and Him alone for my salvation. The fruit or the evidence of conversion is faith and repentance. Without those two, there is no genuine conversion. You're still in process. Faith comes by hearing the Word of God, Romans 10, 17. And the message is heard through the Word of Christ. Faith is assent to my sinful condition and the fact that under the law I am a guilty sinner and deserving of hell. Faith is trust in God's provision for my sins. Faith cannot stop short of commitment to Christ. I must transfer my reliance upon myself for my salvation to reliance upon Christ for my salvation. Faith must ascend to that, and there must be with that faith repentance. It is not simply believing Him. It is believing in Him and upon Him. It is not faith that saves. It is faith in Christ that saves. Buddhists have faith. The cultists have faith. It is not faith that saves. It is faith in Christ that saves. It is union with Christ that saves. And that must be accompanied by repentance. Now when that happens, two legal transactions take place. Legally speaking, God measures us against the standard of the law. He measures us up against the backdrop of law. And what do we see in the law? Holiness. The thou shalt nots of the Ten Commandments become the be ye therefore perfects of Matthew 5.48. The standard of law is perfection and God measures me up against the standard of perfection and I am found in my justification guiltless. I am acquitted. Now I do not become righteous. I am infused with the righteousness of Christ. Why? Because I've broken every law there is. It is not my righteousness, but Christ's righteousness in me by which I am judged. And that is justification. That happens simultaneously with conversion. You can put it all at the same point X. Simultaneous with your conversion. When you have faith, and when you believe, and when you repent of your sins, simultaneously God executes a legal act. He becomes our judge. 
And he judges our sins not through us, but through Christ in us, who stands perfect and holy before the law and guiltless. And our sins are transferred off of our heads and onto his head. Now, does that mean you become perfect? Absolutely not. The perfection of Christ is the basis of our salvation, not my perfection. Thank God that's the case. Well, now that's review. Something else happens at conversion, which I believe, by the way, is one of the most exciting concepts you can ever imagine. When you are converted, that is when you repent of your sins and receive Christ as your Savior and Lord, not only are you morally justified against the backdrop of law, but you are legally adopted by God the Father, who is the creator of the universe. Let that sink in a little bit. And with that, we are granted all of the rights, all of the privileges, and all of the inheritance that a son or a daughter rightfully can claim. All of it. The Catechism says it this way, Adoption is an act of God's free grace, whereby we are received into the number and have the right to all the privileges of the sons of God. Sonship. Daughtership. Think about that. Let that roll around a little bit. A child of God. A son of God. A daughter of God. With all the rights and privileges and inheritances that God can give to sons and daughters. Sonship. You know, I did a little study. <laughs> I actually did a lot of study on the word child. You know, when somebody is called a child or a son of God in Scripture, you may want to jot these things down because you're going to see some interesting things that happen that you won't pick up in your English Bibles. There are three words in the New Testament used to describe a child. Uh, now, the first word is the word technon. It's the most basic word. Now, that word is most commonly used to describe a biological relationship between a parent and a child. For example, I have four children. That means that I have begotten four children. Biologically speaking, Sharon and I have begotten four children. Those children can be described as our technon, our children in the sense of biology. They are our children. Now, that word technon, I found interesting, is never used never used to describe the relationship that Jesus has with his Father. And it stands to reason, why not? Because Jesus was not biologically begotten of the Father. Jesus is the Father. He is the very image of the Father. 
contrary to what the cults teach. Jesus could not be posterior and inferior to the Father. Jesus and the Father are one. That's why the word technon is never used of Jesus in relationship to his Father. Now there's a second word. It's the word huthasion. Interesting word. Now my children begin to develop a relationship with their father. The word huthasion is commonly used of adopted children to adoptive parents. It's a word that describes a new relationship that transcends biology. It's also used of a relationship that develops as your children get older. You see, when that baby is born and you're holding that new infant in your hands, you never hear that child say, you're my daddy. You're my mommy. I have a great need in my life for you at this point to relate to me. The child's not going to say that. Why? Because that's a process that that baby develops. Now, there's a biological bonding that becomes an emotional bonding and a spiritual bonding that's part of the process of a baby getting older, you see. So now that child begins to form a relationship with you so that that child begins to see you as my dad. You ask my four children, tell us about your dad. They probably will not say, he is the one who biologically conceived us. They probably will refer to me in either some positive or negative way, perhaps as they see it. They will refer to me in terms of my relationship to them. That's the word huthasion. That's the second word. Relationship. That's the word that most commonly is used of adopted children. You see, a child can have a biological parent, but never really have in that biological parent fatherhood or motherhood. That's different, isn't it? Anyone can conceive a child. But we're talking about conceiving a child and developing an intimacy with that child. That's what fathering is all about. That's what mothering is all about. But ask any adoptive parent whether or not when they receive that baby, that adopted child, ask them whether or not there isn't an immediate bonding and an immediate relationship that no court in the country could ever break. Why? Because there's something beyond a biological relationship, and that is an intimate relationship. That's the word huthasion. That's the word used to describe our relationship with the Father. But there's a third word. It's rooted in this word, huthasion. It's the word huihos. Same form, same, same root word, but it goes one step beyond huthasion. It's not just biological, not just relational, but it goes one step further. This is the word that is always used in speaking of the relationship that Jesus has with his Father. The first two words are never used. When it talks about Jesus as the Son of God, it's the huihos of God. When he speaks of my Father, the terms used interchangeably speak of a deeper nature. 
more intimate than even an adoptive parent or a biological parent or the relationship that you have with your children. It stresses something much deeper, character and dignity and essence. When Jesus is spoken of as the Son of God, the Weos of God, it is speaking of Jesus as the very image, the very essence, the very character of God. It denotes that the Father and the Son are one and the same. The Son acts like the Father. The Father acts like the Son. Their essential makeup is one and the same. Go over in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 3. Sonship. Are you a son? Are you a daughter of God? 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. Please let this sink in. It'll be the most exciting thing you ever learn about your faith when you come to understand sonship. 1 John 3, verse 1. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. little Greek lesson for you there. The verb lavish is in the perfect tense, which means that it's an action that was completed in the past, but with continuing results. Some of you folks have been really beaten up. Your family has beaten you up. Your job has beaten you up. Your neighbors have beaten you up. And if, and if all of those don't get in their licks, you beat yourself up. And you're hurting and you don't feel very loved. And you haven't grasped sonship. You don't know sonship. It hasn't sunk in yet. You see, God loves you In your lostness. In spite of your lostness. He has loved you who are his elect with an everlasting love. And he doesn't just love you, he lavishes it on you. It's an indicative mood, by the way, to show the certainty of this love. It's not an iffy love. It's not a conditional love. Past act, continuing results, certain, certain for all eternity. That's the love of the Father. Notice what he says. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. That's the second word, huthasia. That's not the technon or the biological conceived child. That's not the huihos the child in the sense that Jesus is the Son of God. That relationship is reserved for Jesus and the Father only. He is the natural image of the Father. We are the adopted children that we should be called the children of God. By the way, again, in the Greek, it's a passive verb, which means you don't have anything to do with it. Children, babies who are adopted, really don't have anything to do with it, do they? The adoption takes place because the father adopts. That we should be called the children of God. 
legally adopted. And the payment for that adoption is the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the transaction. He gives his blood and legally adopts us as his sons and his daughters. You go over to Ephesians chapter 1 and you're going to see how this adoption is linked up with what he did before eternity began. All the way back in eternity, Ephesians 1, 5 and 6, look what it says there. He predestined us to be what? Ephesians 1, 5, he predestined us to be what? Adopted as his Huthasia, as his sons through Jesus Christ. And why did he do that? Because you were so good? Because you were adoptable? No, he did that in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Because of Jesus and his blood on that cross, you have been legally adopted by the Father who is the creator of the universe. Now friends, go over to Romans chapter 8. I want to show you something. Romans chapter 8, you're going to need to put a finger in John 1. Romans 8, John 1. Let's start with Romans 8. I want to state something first negatively, and then I'm going to state it positively. Listen to me. Negatively speaking, every man is not a son of God. Did you hear that? Every man is not a son of God. Romans 8.14 says, because those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now, you know what I found interesting here? Underline that word sons. That word is not technon, the biological word. And guess what? That word is not huthasia, the adoptive word. That word is the word that is used almost exclusively to describe the relationship that Jesus has with his Father, and now it's being used to describe the relationship that those who are led by the Spirit of God have with their Father. What's he saying to you here? What is he promising you? Your adoptive status is not going to be enough. He is going to move you even to a higher level of intimacy. The same level of intimacy that he has with his son, he's going to give to you. Did you hear what I just said? You ought to be on the floor. The same intimacy with the son that God the Father has, he wants to give to you. Notice it says in verse 14, those who are led by the Spirit of God. That's why I stated it negatively, because the Greek word is an emphatic word here, because it means those only. Those only. Well, what's that say to you negatively speaking? Not all men are the sons of God. There is no universal brotherhood of man. There is no universal fatherhood of God. 
We cannot go and enter into the Coca-Cola commercials and raise our hands and talk about the brotherhood of man. We're not all brothers. There's a great divide in Scripture. There is a distinctiveness to being a child of God that the rest of the world doesn't know and never will. John 1.12 says, To all who received him, to those only who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Aorist verb, point of conversion, legal transaction. At point X, when you're converted, you're legally adopted once and for all. He doesn't give you back. You, Jesus says, you belong to your father, the devil. He said that to the people who were opposing his message. And you want to carry out your father's desire. Why? It's natural. If you're in love with your father, if you're in love with your parents, you want to live and behave like they do. So if you're of your father, the devil, you're going to behave like your father, the devil. He says, you're of your father, the devil. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And he says to you who are lost, to you who have rejected Christ, to you who are opposed to the Christian message, you are of your father, the devil. No universal brotherhood of man there, is there? No universal fatherhood of God. There's a great divide. If you love Christ, he is your father. If you don't love Christ, Satan is your father. There's no middle ground. Great divide. John 17, 9, you don't have to look it up. The great priestly prayer of Jesus. He says, I pray not for the world, but I pray for them that you have given me out of the world. For they are yours, and I am yours, and they are mine. The great divide. I pray not for the world. So negatively speaking, when we talk about sonship, not all men are sons of God. But back to that Romans passage. Do you have it? Romans 8. Look at verse 14. Because those who are led by the Spirit of God... Now, if, if you're really interested in following how he uses words here to show the point I've just made, you might want to put these, these words in there. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons, weos, that's the highest level word of God. Now go to verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you received the spirit of sonship, hothesia, the second word, the one that speaks of adoption. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Technon. How'd that word get in there? That's the biological word. That's the word of the lowest level of intimacy. I'll explain in a minute. Verse 17, now if we are children, technon, then we are heirs. Heirs of God. Co-heirs with Christ. You listening to this stuff? If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. You see where your sonship is tied to? You are an heir with Christ, an offspring of the Father, to glory. All the way to glory. 
And that's when the inheritance comes due in glory. Verse 18, there's a means to that inheritance. I consider that our present what? Sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory <clears throat> that will be revealed in us. Verse 19, the creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God, quios, the highest level word, to be revealed. Now he's in glory, and he's talking about the end times, and he's talking about the final consummation of the age. Notice what we're called there. We're called the same thing that Jesus is called in his relationship to the Father. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. This great passage describing sonship uses all three words to describe you. All three words are used to describe you. You know what that tells me? That the whole idea of sonship is a process. It's a process. When my children are born to me from their perspective, they are my technon. There is no intimacy, at least at that point. Not from them to me, certainly from me to them, but not from them to me. They haven't grown to understand that yet. I believe that's the word that describes us at our point of regeneration. If you go back to the birth line, when God unites us with Jesus through his spirit, he changes our nature. That's when we are born in the technon sense. We become the sons and the daughters of God in that very limited sense. Certainly not in its legal sense, not yet. But then he begins to develop his relationship to us, converts us, and then brings us to holiness and ultimately to glory. What happens? As you see in the Romans passage, he uses all the words to describe us. So our level of understanding and our level of maturity, that process of appreciating our sonship in Christ, growing, developing, maturing thing, and the more you understand it, the more you comprehend it, the more freedom in Christ you enjoy. Go over to Galatians chapter 4, another key passage. Galatians chapter 4. And look with me beginning at verse 4. The difference, by the way, is not one of relationship, but one of appreciation of, of that position of sonship at any given point along the way. Now we've had children, I remember when every single one of those children were born. I was there, I know when they were born. My wife was there, she knows when they were born. <laughs> and at that point of birth, those children became our children. And at any given point along the years of development that they have had, at no point along the way did they ever cease to be our children. Their appreciation of their sonship and daughtership, their appreciation and maturity and understanding of their relationship to us matured in the process. But at no given point, were they not our sons and daughters? Now, there were some times where we wanted them not to be. I mean, you all know that what that's about. But, but uh, 
At no given point along the way did our children ever cease to be our children. So at the point of regeneration, in fact, in its wider sense, even before that, in all eternity, you were a child, a daughter, a son of God. But at your point of regeneration, you became his technon. At the point of conversion, you become his uthesia, his adopted child, with all the rights and the privileges that come with that. But now go to Galatians 4 and look with me at verse 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, that's the word huios, that's the word used almost exclusively for the relationship of Jesus to the Father. Born of a woman. Notice he doesn't say born of a woman and a man. Notice he doesn't speak of him as his offspring. He can't do that because Jesus is not an offspring of the Father. He was born of a virgin. The reason he had to be born of a virgin is so that he could not be stained with the nature, the sin nature of man. Fully God, fully man, incarnate, in the womb of a woman, born under law, that's the Ten Commandments, to redeem those under law. Here it is, that we might receive the what? Full, how many? Full rights of sons. Huthesia, adoption. Because you are sons, God sent his spirit, the spirit of his son, into your heart. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. That's the most intimate term of father in the Bible. Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also what? An heir. The entire grammatical flavor of these verses is surrounded by the heiress subjunctive, which means a past action that is vitally related to the future. When Jesus dies on the cross and then secures your salvation at your conversion, justifies and adopts you, you can't separate it from what's going to happen in the future. When you're adopted, you're given legal status. And when you're given legal status, you're given an, you're given an inheritance. You become an heir with all the rights and privileges that come with it. We're called Huthasia. To show that our relationship is much more than one of just an offspring. But intimacy, standing, privilege, honor. And your children, whether they're infants or little children or teenagers or even as adults, are not more or less the actual child of the parent at any one stage. They're always your children. He, the child, simply grows in a more mature and larger sense of his own sonship so that he calls his father Abba. Abba. You know, if you had a slave in these days and your slave committed a sin against you, and that slave came and confessed that sin, you could say to the slave, I forgive your sin. But then he returns as a slave. Now that's one thing. But suppose you were a slave and you sin against your master. And your master says, I don't only forgive you, but I set you free. And not only do I set you free, but now that you're an orphan, and you're alone. I am not only going to set you free, but I'm going to take you, you who have sinned against me. 
you who have no rights to the throne. I am going to not only forgive you, but I'm going to set you free, and then I'm going to adopt you, and then I'm going to give you the same inheritance that I give to my other children. Is that person still a slave? Oh, no. That person becomes a child, an heir, a son, a daughter, who's been given a promise. That's the beauty of the story of the prodigal son. The father not only forgave him, not only set him free, not only gave him his inheritance, but killed the fatted lamb and celebrated the return of his child. You see, the psalmist says, in, in sin did my mother conceive me. Uh, by nature, Paul tells us that we are children of Adam. We are fallen creatures, born with the original sin, in the loins of Adam, fully lost. And our father is Satan, who is a liar from the beginning, and our nature is depraved. And we become dead, dead in our trespasses, and orphaned as the result of our sins, and slaves and in bondage to our natures of evil. And it is from that fallen condition that we are snatched by the Spirit of God, grafted into His family, and give all the rights and privileges and, yes, responsibilities of sonship and daughtership in Jesus Christ, can there be any higher privilege than that? By nature, we are Adam's children. By nature, in our sins, we die. And our spirits are orphaned. And that's why Paul can say, for you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. I don't return you to slavery. Romans 8, 15, but you receive the spirit of sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. There it is. The spirit of sonship, the spirit of adoption, a legally binding act whereby an orphan sinner who is not related by nature is adopted by a holy God, taken into his family, given a new standing as a son with all of the rights honors and privileges and responsibilities that come with it. So the question is, have you been legally adopted? Another question becomes, how can you be sure of your sonship? How can you be sure that you've been adopted? Stick around, we'll talk about that. This program has been brought to you by Mark Inc. Ministries, proclaiming the truth that God is sovereign and you can trust Him. Please visit us online at markinc.org to learn about other available sermons and resources.